would you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. Uh, I'm joined today by a vocal genius, impressionist extraordinaire, all the way from a car in uh, Scotland. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Lewis McLeod. Lewis, how are you? I'm good, Simon. Also, I have to say, a parked car in my driveway in case any authorities think that I'm just taking a phone call. Well, I've figured out I've got a little studio in my house that I've just finished building. Yeah, and uh, I, I did all the the spec work on it. You know, put the make sure that I ordered all the panels, got the software, got the mics, the speakers, <clears throat> made sure all the shelving was in the right place, and forgot to put in ventilation. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when I shut the door on it, it, uh, it turns into. Uh, uh, a steam room sauna type <laughs> effect, which is not very pleasant. A little while ago, I bought myself a, a vocal booth, which would have been where I'm sitting now, just behind me. It weighed about 4,000 tonnes. Uh, so you could feel the house kind of bend after I put it in. And, uh, <laughs> but it had the same, it kind of had the same problem, which was no ventilation unless you put the fan on, yes. uh, which was kind of work from outside and you put the fan on. That's all you could hear through the microphone. So uh, I got rid of it. And uh, here I am today working from uh, just a room. That's all it is. Um, well, it's, it's a great to have you on. We, we worked together a few times back in the day. We did weekending, I think, on Radio 4, a couple of yeah. voiceovers here and there. After that, I, uh, my career took a nosedive, partly because I, I stopped. But you've been going from strength to strength. And Interestingly, right now, uh, as we speak in the middle of the, the corona catastrophe, I think it's probably mm. as good a way as any to describe it, President Trump has been showing his true colours. I don't know whether you, you've got a thought on that. Yeah, well, OK, so Trump, the Donald, was a voice that we did on Dead Ringers. Initially, yeah. I my impersonation of Donald Trump was more akin, oddly, to Alec Baldwin in the movie Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Yeah. I didn't really pay much attention to him, so went for more of an attitude. And I had this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of sound, because you, you, you're, you're talking about what? You're bitching about some cell you shot. You know, that, that sort of Baldwin. If you've ever seen Glen Gary, Glen Ross, it's the yeah, have, yeah. male dominating movies, you know. you know. Yeah. And um, so I went for that. And then when it, when he started to show that, well, he, he was going to go for this, then we really started to nail it. And actually, when I look back now to sort of 2015, 16, then it's like the, the Donald that I was doing, you could sort of see it developing or hear it developing. And now I feel like I've got a handle on him. The, the impersonation that I do is essentially... It's the quiet, it's in repose, it's very quiet and it's, you know, and then I found out, of course, I might be related to him because his mum was a McLeod from the Isle of Lewis, no. which, yeah, which apparently they all, they all look like him up there. Now, oddly, when I, I've got, <laughs> they all, they're not talking like that, but they're not talking like that, sort of Highland Donald, but um, <laughs> um, he's got... You know, there's so it's a very you know when he was when he was doing his um, electioneering, he was in a lot of stadiums, as you know, these big yeah. arenas and twenty thousand. And the, his declamatory tone was is a voice I still find quite tricky. But then he gets, he gets when he's on the one to ones with people like Barbara Walters, and there was a, a brilliant clip where he she sort of said to him, you know, Donald why did you decide to do this? And he sort of just, you know, that's when he got right in and he said, you know, because I figured I was the right person for the job. Like, um, and I went, oh, that's, I can do that guy. And, um, yeah. you yeah. know, there is, there's 40 years between us, but somehow he has got quite a, an interesting range in his voice. He can really yeah. hit some quite high frequencies, especially yeah. when you think about the amount of work he was doing prior to the election win. He was yeah. pretty much every night shouting at the top of his voice, which any voiceover, <laughs> any mimic, I'll tell you, it's really hard. So yeah. he was, uh, so, that so far, you know, the one that's been making me laugh is the I have ultimate power. You know, we want to talk about the planets because Jupiter, big planet, very big, has over 50 little planets all around it, like they, and they all do what they're told to the big gas giant. Jupiter looks like marble. My staircase, great job. 
<laughs> you've got that. You've got. Uh, incidentally, I should just say I'm, I'm. I'm looking at Lewis. What he's doing is he's producing that mouth shape that we've become very <laughs> familiar with the kind of a, a kind of a stretch of the of the the bottom lip across isn't it yeah and, and the sound then comes out through a little envelope of, of sort of teeth and tongue it's a marvelous creation that and you you're getting all of the little nuances but what i think is brilliant about that impression is that is the little asides you know the little things that he says that just come out from uh, mostly meaningless, uh, and yet they, they they dot his conversation all the time. Yeah, there's and a I lot think, of repetition. The secondary, yeah. the repetition of you know, Simon, Simon, you know, he was a good guy, good guy, you know, and uh, and, and and the sort of little things of well, I mean, it's like a facelift when you do an impersonation of him. You know, you get, but what yeah, really yeah. Uh, when I started in corporates, which was something I always wanted to do, because I figured well. There is an element when you're a voiceover of, of it being, well, you've done your shift. And I've been doing it over 30 years now. And, like, you think, when's this going to run out? And I've had a good run at it. And corporates yeah. felt to me like a fun way to, you know, to do the evening circuit, get a bit of stand-up experience if I could get some traction yeah. with it. So we got a wig. And we went to Alex Rouse and we got this fantastic wig, which is, uh, to buy it would be about 5,000 quid. But when she modelled it, we put it on. Yeah. It's it's really weird, you know. The the transformation can be, and so I think there's there's a lot as you know. There are a lot of character comics that when they put on like an earring or a ring or a watch or something, they go, "I've got it now. I'm now doing it." You know, yeah. I'm sure Coogan yeah. feels that when he's doing Partridge, that there's some something he he yeah. needs to wear in yeah. order for it to just suddenly it, it become kind of the, the thing. You, helps you focus in, doesn't it, on on the character yeah. you're you're portraying. I know you've been working with uh, Ronnie Ancona, haven't you? Who plays yeah. your <laughs> Melania to your to your Donald? Let's sort of move move back from Donald. Let's kind of start at the beginning. You mentioned you've been doing this for for thirty years. Presumably, like all of us, you know, and I still say us. I'm still vaguely a, a, a mimic. You started at school, entertaining your friends, entertaining family. What was what was where did it all start? And when did you realise you had this gift? Well, we've it's it's oddly in the last few weeks um, been sort of pulled into focus. My brother, my middle brother, who passed away just recently, he yeah. he was the he was a kind of integral to it because he he would do it at school, and me being sort of eight years younger, he uh, was in the early seventies. I guess it was Tommy Cooper, it was Dick Emery, uh, to a certain extent Kenny Everett. Uh, in the less so in the early seventies, and that's when I took up the, the mantle of impersonating his characters. Yeah. But I was watching him, and I, as I, even from a very young age, realised that there is an element of joy attached to this. That if you were sitting around the dinner table, and I know Alistair McGowan uh, talked about this, he thought that, that his his quote was brilliant. He said he just thought that's what everybody did yeah. because around the, the dinner table we would start impersonating their parents and there was this uh, ribald humour, especially on a Sunday because my father was quite religious and so anything that sort of disrupt that, disrupted that somewhat was something that was quite exciting in a way because we were all sitting there while my father would say, Grace, you've got these, my two brothers, both of them aspiring punk rockers, undermining it somehow. But it seemed to have just become the routine in our, in our house was this element of character impersonation Monty Python a big one of that oh, and my yeah, father really yeah. encouraged it because he would record it someone he would accurate I'd get, we'd get cassettes scattered about the place where it was you know that he would put the, t the microphones on the table and, and and just encourage them to do like a little show a bit like what people are doing at home now we yeah. were doing in the you know I suppose a lot of families were when when you could afford a mic I mean the idea that you could have a microphone with a five pin din which is like a midi cable still plug yeah. it into the back of the video recorder or the television or the hi-fi you had and record was was quite a big thing yeah and yeah. Uh, so we were we were all over that and and just making silly tapes and i yeah. just picked up on it at that time were you were you obviously you're taking people off that you knew were you yeah. also starting on celebrities people in, you know in sport in politics were you doing that as well yes i was i i, I didn't really 
think I was any good at it until it was the teachers initially at school. So that's yeah. your first audience, really. Mm. You know, your family's your family, and 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 and, it, and they'll they'll encourage you. But it's it's so kinetic that that that's not becoming their focus for you. But that's but when you get in class and you have now 25, 30 people then it take, they take notice and so then yeah. the teachers would find out and then then you would become the class clown at the end of term or you would be brought further into the assembly hall area for any shows that were and so that that escalation of class to you know school show and then i suddenly thought well wait a minute this if this is the norm if this is what i should be doing then of course one thing's going to suffer and that was certainly my my studies yeah so i went from barely scraping through o levels and a levels into working full time in a sports shop but working in the evenings doing you know i mean i've, I've got memories i've been 17 years old with a shirt and tie on going down to a social club to do a stack night i hated it wow. but it yeah. was being properly flung in the deep end and yeah uh, that really taught me well i don't not want to do this but i just maybe need to find my my audience or my crowd you know did, did you realize then i mean at that age 17 that actually this this is going to be my thing this is the thing i know i can do and i'm i'm ready you know to, to launch and, and become an actor and i know you act as well and you do voiceovers but you could see that then yeah, very much so. I think that yeah. when I knew that I was capable, I knew that it, it, first of all, I knew that it brought joy. It made people happy. It was great yeah. fun. It got you out of some trouble, essentially. You, I, I was never really bullied as such in, in secondary school. I didn't really have any problems because people knew me as that funny guy. Yeah, so even yeah. even the, the hard asses would come up and want you to do, do something funny to entertain them. So, it was a, so I felt kind of ring-fenced. So... I had a sort of element of choice where I could say, yeah. right, well, what do I want to do? Initially, I thought I'll join the police because my father was a cop. I would have been yeah. the fourth generation police officer. And then I thought, well, he talked to me out of it. He said, no, do this. Get into this because at that crux of sort of 87, I'd be 17, 88, alternative comedy, as it was then known, was yeah. was coming into Scotland where it had been in London for about five years we were getting it in Scotland. So then I was finding my audience. Then I was able to sort of hang out with like-minded individuals, albeit I was a lot younger. You know, they were coming out of university and they were, I'd already been in jobs. And so I, I was still the youngest as in that group, but I was, again, you're, you're sort of malleable at that age because once mm. you're in the door, once you're doing talent contests and then things like that, scouts will come along to say, well, we've got a kids' telly show that we want you to audition for. And so I was malleable enough. So I went, sort of mimicry sort of impressions and, and I became a presenter for three years, you know, because I, I was that. young enough. I was able, I was yeah. malleable enough to, to do it and still decide give, what I wanted give, to do as a career. Give me a, give me a flavor then. Just give me a quick run through of those early impressions. You know, who were you doing back in your, uh, you know, your, your first days as a performer? Well, it would be, I remember doing a Greenpeace gig at school, even in 1985, I was only 15 yeah. and that was Ian McCaskill and I built a, you know, a weather map of the UK and went, oh, yeah. well, yeah, you're doing that, you know, you're sort of, and the weather up there in Scotland. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the Kenny Everett characters, pretty much all of them, you know, yeah. from Cupid Stunt, Sid Snot, Gizzard, Puke, uh, <laughs> and even the announcer characters that he did. In fact, I think that Everett brought to me pretty much all of the broad accents that you could have as a voiceover from yeah. you know from you know from him doing this sort of voice to the to the oh michael i'm telling you the plot the out cockney accents there were you know film trailery type voices that i i could understand and mimic all of them and star wars my goodness star wars had a massive influence on me because i was yeah you know, we were all in that universe, 1977. It, it just, these momentous uh, cinematic events grew up with us and we mimicked mostly, not not topically as such. We didn't, I wasn't really following sort of Rory's route at that point, doing po politicians. Yeah. Um, yes, I was doing sportsmen, but again, not many because I wasn't particularly athletic myself at the time and I just didn't feel I was that bothered about it. But cinema sketch comedy and sitcom i was very much a so who, what, well what, who, who would you be doing in those days in in sitcom yeah well we, we had there was alf garnett we had when i was allowed to watch not the nine o'clock news we'd watch 
Uh, yeah. We oh geez, was, I mean even programs like Duty Free, we we kind of that were the, the sort of yeah, the young ones, I guess, was the one that really yeah you yeah. know we all did you know um, the the young ones characters uh, you know Aid Edmondson and Rick Mail and things like that. You mentioned just I'm sort of going going backwards and forwards a bit here, but that's that's okay. We, you mentioned that you were working in you know sort of doing working men's clubs and and you know kind of that's a that's a pretty hard school of of knocks, isn't it? You know, I saw you in Edinburgh about uh, I must say six, six five six years ago. Uh, Mike Lee was uh, was I know Mike Lee quite well. He was. Oh, I can mostly Mike Lee. Your... Mike, how you doing, Lewis? Uh, listen, Lewis, <laughs> don't worry about it, darling. Listen, if the gold goes to shit, just do your Susan Boyle. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. <laughs> this is well, that is useless. For those of you who don't know Mike Lee, that's Mike Lee. Uh, he's an agent, a uh, manager. He's an old, kind of an old style man manager, isn't he? An artist manager. Mm-hmm. And I saw your show, and it was an, it was a stand up show, and you and you talked about being a voiceover, which is something we'll we'll come on to a bit later. And then you did a, a, quite a lot of impressions. Now, I mean, obviously, I know you. I've always known you as an impressionist or someone someone with you know great versatility, but I, I didn't think of you as a stand-up. Um, no, so yeah, you'd be right. You mentioned, yeah. So, had you done work, you know, standing behind a microphone, uh, doing your doing your stuff as an, in your early days, but did you leave stand-up aside? while you were doing because like you mentioned star wars and i know you've you've since worked on star wars films in you know in hollywood extensively and, and provided lots of voices and also for the uh, video games and all the rest of it so what brought you into to stand up when ray winston got the movie scum he talks about a confidence he had when he was a very young man yeah that, uh, that lasted only temporarily for a season even yeah when they had to then go away and come back and learn learn the craft and i had that in about 97 sorry 87 88 i yeah. bounded into comedy wearing you know i looked like fucking timmy mallet sorry i looked like timmy mallet excuse <laughs> the language but i didn't have have i had nothing to talk about simon i had no life experience i yeah. had only the the sort of inherent ability that i had sound effects yeah. impersonating doors opening and, and i mean it was just nuts what i was doing but it wasn't even honed. It was just a sort of spasmodic ability that would come and sort of, well, that was a funny idea. Well, and then you'd, I'd never write anything down. I had no discipline. I suppose if I was to talk to myself, you know, aged 18 and say, right, you need to do this and you need to give yourself some time to learn this. And so going back to stand up always gave me the fear. In fact, I only performed in the, the comedy store for the first time last year. And when I walked through the doors in oh. Leicester Square, the smell of the club hit me and immediately yeah. I was transformed back to 1992 when, I, yeah. when I'd watched my peers on stage blowing them, them away and, and I got a real sense of, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, it was the, and circuitously it was the, it's the oddest thing because I've had to go back and learn it and yeah. really unravel all the things that, I wouldn't say I was doing philosophy, I'm impersonating allied to a, a situation we can all recognise, but it's yeah. not yeah. its not as soul-searching as a lot of the ones I admire are. No. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I used to play the comedy store a fair bit, and there, there was always that moment when you sort of came down the stairs. Actually, I played i played the, the old comedy store first, and then I played the new one. You come in, and you there are pictures of all the old, you know, alternative comedians on the walls as you come down. You know, and Robin Williams is there, and and Seinfeld is there, and you know yeah. everyone, everyone you've ever seen and admired, and you kind of wander around the back, and it, it, there is a there's an odd sense of wow, you you know, I was quite an experienced stand up, and still it hit you with that. So I, I can't imagine what what that was like as someone with a relatively short period as a as a you know, doing stand up work, just coming into that environment and. You know, it's it's daunting. I think it's pretty daunting, but also inspiring. So once you get on yeah. that stage, you're away. It's a, you can get your first laugh, and it really is. You know, you really feel it. I know it's the best. It is the best thing, and and understanding. And certainly, when I've now not given myself the burden of saying I stand up, you're not doing philosophy. You know, like yeah. the late great Sean Hughes would say, "Why would you hire a comedy writer?" 
I depend on them, you know. But so I used to have these the, the sort of memory and image of these really, you know, uh, hard comics, real tried and tested disciplinarians bearing down on me going, no, oh, but you've hired a comedian, you've hired a writer, you're not a philosopher. And so essentially I, I wasn't a true stand-up. And so I, I used to be really hard on myself. And uh, mm. and so then I would kind of retract from it and go and do something that I sort of fitted into. But mm. uh, but the the feeling now, it's a much, it's it, that all disappears. Waters that pass away is the feeling of, Actually, it's, not, it's much more freeing to know that you do need writers. You do need to learn stagecraft. You need to learn, yeah. uh, and painfully so, and it might take 20 years or longer. Yeah. Just okay, that's not a problem. And yeah. I, I know that feeling. I know how that is. And um, hiring writers for me now is a joy because I can, I'm actually able now, because of read-throughs and the scripts and BBC stuff and the ringers and the the BBC was a godsend because I could go and sit in a writer's room and I'd see the process from writers who weren't themselves trained. So I felt very much in an even keel, even though I'd done a lot of stuff yeah, when, yeah. Know, up to that point. It's interesting that, I mean, you, you mentioned about, you know, if you're not, you're not there to philosophize, you know, I mean, you, you, your gift is mimicry and, and presenting characters. And I, I used to get a bit of this nonsense back in the early days when I was a stand up, you know, you'd go into a club and you'd go and do some funny voices and get you might get a, an encore, and I, I did that once at the comedy store. Got an encore, and the the, the compere who will be nameless for this purpose just said, "You know what are you what are you clapping for? He's just copying." <laughs> I thought, "Well, thank you for oh, dis- my dismissing my act as just copying." And I think, just copying. The, yeah, I just think, oh well, I was thinking, if you're going to go and do stand up, the, the validation is the laughter, right? If they're yes. laughing, you're funny and you're there to make them laugh. I didn't ever feel I needed to say anything of any great profundity. Oh, you know, that, um, that, I, I've had that too, Simon. I mean, you know, where uh, I've had people you know, maybe maybe to be a stretch for, to, to refer to them as the people that Billy Connolly once referred to as the comedy police. But yes. there, is a, there is a coterie that go, it's very tricksy what you do. I mean, ah, it's very yes. tricksy. You're not going to say that yeah. to Darren Brown. One of the one of the things that I noticed about um, being a mimic, and it was when Bill Clinton was president, and um, I was, it was Bill Clinton and um, George W. Bush. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's about authority figures. I like that. You know, I, I've impersonated a lot of authority figures over the years. Now. So I, I went to basically, I went to New York and um, yeah. to, to to check out the script guru, a wonderful man called Steve Kaplan. And I urge anybody who's interested in comedy writing and performing to go and see this guy and to do his two day comedy intensive workshop. He's absolutely brilliant, yeah. and he uh, helped me enormously. And, and and, and we're all in the room, there's a lot of writers and, and mimicry hadn't really crept into the two days. And at the end of the two days, when we'd, we'd analysed Groundhog Day as a, as, a, as a thesis almost, and we're scribbling notes like we were at uni, we, a guy put his hand up, he happened to be a plumber, and he said, hey, you know something? He said, I really like the guys that do the voices. You know the, the mimics in that, you know? <laughs> and I put my hand up and I said, well, I'm a mimic and I've got a question. And it was this, I said, I've got two presidents both saying something verbatim and one always gets a bigger laugh than the other. And he said, well, let's hear it. Let's hear the voices. So I, I said, there is no such word in Francis entrepreneur. So the room's got about 300 people. They all laughed. And then he said, let's hear the next one. And I went, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And the place erupted. And you know what he said off the back of that laugh? He said, There's your, your answer is this. That is what brings you joy. I thought, really? <laughs> I'm impersonating people that are that are potentially villains because it brings me joy. Yes. I hadn't seen it from that angle oh, before. Interesting and, perspective. I, well, and if you and honestly, I mean, I get in Dead Ringers, I get all the ones that have that have bombast. You know, Nigel Farage. No, no, no. Let me speak. And. Um, that's how we do them. We give them a li- I, I decided that, well, if we're going to do Farage, no, 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 we have to do something at the very beginning. And it becomes this little, you know, this little Monica. And uh, not Monica Lewinsky, that's another story altogether, but we won't go there. Well, it's just a little Monica, a little soundbite. No, no, no. And then you can do what you like. You can laugh yeah. through the voice. And Boris, yeah. we came we came up with the... So they're going into cartoon land, but... Yeah. Uh, even he, they they evolve, you know. They yeah. they change. 
you know, Connery was, which was one of the first come back, one of the first voices I ever did. I yeah. mean, imagine a 17 year old trying to be James Bond. I mean, it must sound ridiculous, you know. Yeah. My name is Bond, yeah. James Bond. But now, you know, as the voice, as my voice got older, then so did some of the parts. And yeah. you know, the, 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 you know, there's a sort of <laughs> seems like everybody could do Connery, like everybody does Trump, but there's. Yeah. You just give them your your take on it. That yeah. Uh, well, that, that that's also interesting. Something that's emerged talking to other impressionists during making an impression is that different impressionists can present a voice, and it, if you listen to them separately, they both sound like the person. If you put them both together, they sound nothing like each other or the person. And I, and I've I've noticed that, and it's interesting this because I was talking to Danny Postel. And he started doing uh, Tim Vine and Jeremy Vine. Now, I know Jeremy Vine is one of your absolute peach impressions, and you've done, you've done shows <laughs> as Jeremy Vine. And I, I said to him, well, could you kind of teach me how to do that? Because I, I don't do either of them. He was doing a very good Tim Vine. And then he started doing Jeremy Vine, and it was great. But he's got quite a high... You know, he's in a fairly high register, and yet it was great because he got some of the little ticks and nuances of Vine and that kind of breathy thing. And I said to him, you know, I've never done Jeremy Vine, but to me, it sounds like he's crying. He's got that kind of, you know, he's about to cry. But what is your way into Jeremy Vine? Well, nobody was doing him for a start on any show yeah. that we had heard. And, we, and I, I said to Bill Dare, I said, listen, I think I can do him. What we decided was it was just copy, mimic the way, the meter of what he's saying, the percussive yeah. quality of it. And on the program today, we are talking and it's so wonderful to see the support of people. Tangentially, and then everything speeding up and then slowing down and getting the sincerity of what he's saying. And that sounds so awful, but please do keep your calls coming. Call me now on the program. Today we're speaking to the man who's grown an extra elbow. And <laughs> just very odd scansion of line. And uh, and I, I think it suits the, well, the, it, it, it's, you've got to always try and find a voice on ringers that's somehow going to work within the building blocks of the show that, you know, yeah. if there's a presenter, who are you going to go for? Are you going to go for a, yeah, essentially it has to be a BBC presenter if you're yeah. doing a yeah. statistic within a sketch. So he fitted perfectly. So on the programme tonight, we're looking, here I am. I'm standing inside David Cameron's nostril. Now, if we look over here, look <laughs> over here. <laughs> you know, and then... It just and and with the freedom that you're allowed within parody, you can give it a certain amount of torsion. So not even sure what I'm saying to you now, Simon. It was a gift of a voice, and I don't one that I would never have considered. But I remember just listening to him one night and thinking, actually, you know, because I've got quite a, a low voice, yeah. and just this, that that thing when I was just listening to what you were saying about Danny, the best compliment I could be given is a mimic. Well, a paycheck is nice, but the no is the compliment that. Well, this is so good that we we're going to overlay it over the person's voice, and there is a, a, a I would call it a, a a department X in the industry that actually yeah. does do that for distribution. There is a there is a kind of there's a gold standard I think somewhere perhaps that if you were watching you know the person you're going to mimic, and actually yeah. it's not them talking, it's you. That's something that that, that piques my interest enormously because then I think well. Well, what is? Why are we doing this? Is there a is there a therapy center somewhere in New York or wherever you know that we called at Meadows or something like you know like like a place? And they, they, they meet you as you turn up in the van. And they, Where are you today? I'm oh Pacino. Get out of my motherfucking way. Oh. <laughs> It's, I don't know, it's the oddest thing because it is, it's, it's part of our life, isn't it? It's like we are yeah, we are constantly yeah. led by the sound. And it's music, it is music. Lynn Ferguson said to me that mimicry is music. It's very interesting that because I, I do think quite often uh, impressionists are, are musically gifted as well, by which I don't mean they can all play the violin to grade eight. I don't mean that. But but the, you tend to hear sounds. And I was going to ask you about your process. For me, it was just about hearing a sound and kind of without sounding too wanky and pretentious about it, hearing the music in a voice, just hearing where the, the cadence is, where are the, where's he going, what's he doing? 
and then I would, you know, but it's much more instinctive for me than than kind of academic. I had no academic approach to it. So let's let's say you're taking a, I don't know, pick a voice, one of your favourite voices, and and then talk me through how you go about making that happen. Well, okay, um, I, I, I'm just plucking one out of there. Well, Barack Obama, Obama was one that there. there this is a voice that I've. I've found to be particularly difficult. Now, it, everybody has their own take on that voice. But the one thing that I, I tried to do was to, to, to really get the, 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 the very nub of what he was trying to say. And that doesn't need uh, pitch. It just needs uh, the sincerity of the moment. Um, building that up is, okay, so let me go back to what I just said there about Lynn Ferguson. Yeah. She basically cast me in a Radio 2 production called Millport, which had Janet Brown, another brilliant, oh, she's she a hero brilliant. of mine. She was a phenomenal mimic and did Thatcher and had so many stories about going to America with, and, and with Joan Rivers and people like that. And so I used to love sitting with her at lunch and just and picking her brain. But she, um, she said to me when we were in the production, Lynn, because she had cast me with a guy who, as a, a character who only could say... Uh, two words, eh and I. So yeah. he had only two words to say. So he, if you asked, if you said something to him, he would go, eh. And then he would follow up with, I, as in A-Y-E, yes. And so I thought he was thick. I thought, this guy's an idiot. You know, he's, he only says two words. And she looked at me and said, ostensibly, he's the cleverest character in the piece. So we got off to a bumpy start. Because I played him like this, eh, I. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the most humiliating thing of all happened, she recast me, which did no favours for my confidence as an actor because I'd been recast <laughs> from playing a guy that only had two in once to say. Yeah. So she said, you're missing the tune of the voice. And I was going, well, what do you mean? She said, no, but you're, you're not getting the tune of the voice. And this was 2003. This is before YouTube. So when we wanted yeah. to mimic, you know, Ronnie and Kona, when we did shows together, it was all cassette led or it was you know vhs we had yeah. nothing that was so digital as this we had yeah. nothing to go on really um yeah. so she said you're missing the tune get the tune right and, I, and so i started singing the voices so that when we came around to doing 2d tv and george michael for example do you know and the funny thing about it was you know <laughs> this stuff keeps me sane you know i'm saying george michael actually you would sort of get the tone of the voice yeah, and i would yeah. sort of you know i'd find what was the most common frequency that they would make and i would yeah. start layering that and then i would you know i would have you know somewhere in the semblance of george michael paul mccartney is the same you know hey find out it could be something a little bit, you know, a little bit different, musicality, you know. And back then, and always, certain repetitious words are actually, and a little back of the throat, a little older, you know, a little bit croakier because, you know, he's not a young guy anymore, but he can still say, ah. and, and <clears throat> there's so many ways that you can attack this. You can, yeah. you can, um, warming up's good as well, but, I always wanted to do trailer voices. So I was, uh, you know, you, you can't have both really, you know. So I went through a period of prodigious drinking and smoking. And then I was getting, <laughs> I was getting 9 a.m. bookings with a stinking hangover uh, to go in and go, imagine a world, imagine a time from director, whoever the director was, <laughs> yeah. Steven Spielberg yeah. comes an adventure like no other. And I, I always wanted to be that guy. I was sitting there at 14 in the cinema going, that's brilliant. This, you know, trailers are great. Yeah, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah. that's how you'll talk for the rest of your life, son. <laughs> <laughs> so that's I had to follow the moniker of everything in moderation, including moderation. Uh, absolutely. You're employing lots of different techniques, music, and, you know, finding those little nuances. Do you also work, you know, you, are you thinking about where a voice is sitting in your throat or in your mouth, or can you hear it, you know, I don't know, vibrating through your head? Is there, is there, do you go through that process? Well, I know that um, good friends and colleagues of mine teach that uh, extensively. And I know that Peter Dixon's very good at, Peter, when he goes on holiday, I'm his official sound alike. <laughs> but he, 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 uh, he, you know, he's all over that. And and yeah. what I can, what if you were to show me in a piece of paper, the diphthongs and all the placing and the that that's 
somebody who's technically brilliant. Me, I, I'm, maybe it's more, I don't know, I guess since, since I got that technique, I thought, well, that really is what I'm going to stick to. And somewhat embarrassing as you have to be when a voiceover finds a character is that you have to go through this contortion of a process where you're trying out different sounds. But yeah. there are some yeah. that will just sit down and go, no, you place the voice here, here and here. And ta-da, you've got it. And there yeah. are guys that do that really well. Yeah. I'm, I'm not one of them. It's a, it's a kind of more instinctive. You you know you obviously got a natural flair for an accent, and 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 you can kind of you can kind of feel where the voice should be and how to how to reproduce it without without over analyzing. You know how you're going about that. Well, it does, and I think uh, you know referencing somebody like Peter, who's you know one of the great all time VO sounds yeah. and. In in the world, really, and and yeah. so he would he would ally that with mic technique, and what you were using to create the sound, and so it's very difficult to to sort of disagree with that because yeah. you it's it's the craft, it's you know it's somebody yeah. who yeah. studies hard and and gets results, and yeah. you know you find that he, anyone that's got a flying background or something like that, you know, it's preparation, preparation, preparation. And that is vital. So I, yeah. I, I don't discount it, discount it at all. I think that because we are now perfect, this is our profession. It goes part and parcel. It just took me a lot longer to learn that process. Interesting. I'm just going to say that we're talking about accents. I mean, I probably that's where I started, and maybe where you started as well. Lots of people I've spoken to, you know, it's kind of oh, hang on, I, I can sound a bit like that, but how that person talks, you know, if you find a. Uh, I'm, when I was a kid, I, I'm from London, but I moved to Liverpool, and very quick, you know, they talk like that, you know, very quick. very fast, it's fantastic. And I and I kind of realised I could I could nail that very easily. There's no great effort involved, so that was clearly something that I was born with. But one thing that I am interested in now, you and I probably have got a similar pitch. We're both, you know, we're both quite bassy. Does that preclude you then? Do you automatically? not try stuff that is, you know, way up here. Are there, are there voices well, that just... no, because, you know, somebody like Jeremy isn't in that area at just... all. And then there's character voices, and I'm always up for that as well. And I says, I've got several characters that are doing. Some of them are just up there all the time. Singing in the car, practising singing is, is, is yeah. good. My, my yeah. practice involves uh, singing along with Philip Bailey, who's a uh, singer yes, in Earth, Wind and Fire. Earth, yeah. Wind and Fire. And yeah. the, the, there's one great song that he does, After the Love is Gone. Oh, um, my favourite <clears> song of all time. Yeah. You you go to that range, he goes that. <laughs> I mean, it goes, yeah. how, do you know, how do you hit those? You just can. I think that in the early 90s, when we were doing a lot of voiceovers for. Uh, you know, you, you could be jumping from a, a, a promo for Nickelodeon and then going in and doing a bank commercial or a car ad. Your voice would be dropping and going over the rest of the all day long. If I went into a pub or if I went into a social gathering, I had no idea of how to how to, to place place my voice. And I would that's when I would lose my voice, not in the studio because yeah. I had perfect uh, acoustic reference. Um, yeah. So when, I I never I don't doubt anything. I'll give it a go because once you're in the in the suite. Uh, working, you might come up with a, a sound that you never thought possible, you know? Well, that's interesting because I've just written down the word surprise. Are there voices you've done that you've surprised yourself? Hang on. Oh, hang on. That's just come to me in, in a flash. And I, it's one I've never it worked out or thought about and it's suddenly there. Yeah, well, there was a character we did for um, Gumball on Cartoon Network called Miss Simeon. And I, I was in, I think I was in two series of it. I think uh, we we set up the characters, and then quite a compliment for a voiceover is to have yourself revoiced. So you're you're the you're the mimic, but you're now being mimicked. You know, uh, was Miss Simeon, which which was this grotesque character who spoke <laughs> like that? Oh, that's just how I like it. Warm and hot. <laughs> and, and then the headmaster was was an American Roger Moore called Principal Brown. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Watterson. <laughs> we had, we had the had fun, but an absolute, you know, because you can go through hell trying to find a voice. You know, it can take hours. Yeah. I think the best ones come in the windy. They just land on you and you go, ah, maybe it's that. I don't know. 
Yeah, uh, it just it just it's kind of an instinctive. Oh, there it is. Let, let, let me ask you this: you you talked about kind of revoicing things, and you you know you're you're the guy. Have you ever met anyone that you do? Um, well, I've met Jeremy. Jeremy. Jeremy's actually said on air, I, "I'm now talking like the way you tell me." You know, I'm now sounding like Lewis McLeod. And, and much to the delight of Ken Bruce, I actually tuned in one of those lovely moments from our, I, I remember I was driving along and I'd, I, you know, I'd normally play Spotify, but I put on Radio 2 at the point <laughs> where there's a changeover. And, and Ken Bruce said, uh, so Jeremy, what's happening on the show today? And he goes, well then, and he does his thing. And then, so, and then he concluded with, so that's what's happening on the show today. And Ken Bruce burst out laughing <laughs> because we'd been doing we'd been doing them on Steve Wright, and that's when he he cracked up as well. He said, "I'm turning into Lewis McLeod." So that that was nice. That's when it goes well. When it doesn't yeah. go well, uh, is no. And 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 since then, by the way, I've I've met him, and he's one of the sweetest, funniest men. Was the football manager Alex McLeish? He's a legend. But when I first met, when I first heard him. Oh, I thought he was one of the hardest sounding guys I'd ever heard in my life. You know, I mean, you don't want to cross this guy. No, and, no. Uh, and I went, I went up to him at a charity dinner and I was going, I'm so excited to meet him. I said, Alex, it's so great to meet you. I went, I do your voice and off the ball. And he turned around and he went, he turns around and he went, I don't talk like that. Right, of course you don't, Alex. Well, have a, have a lovely night. Have a great dinner. Bye. It was. It was 10 years before I met him again socially. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and we pissed ourselves laughing about that. And he he, he was just fantastic. And I, I yeah. said, do you remember? He said, I remember that. I. <laughs> the football ones, as I said, you know, we I didn't get many to do. But the ones I did, they were the ones I would normally meet at dinners. John yeah. Boyle, the motherable chairman, he was hilarious to do. <laughs> we, we, we were told to give him a voice. Now, for your listeners that don't know John Boyle, he... He, he ran Motherwell and owned an airline called Zoom. Yeah. And he's, he's actually Glaswegian. And he talked, I thought he talked a bit like that. He's what, hilarious, man. But yeah. Tam Cowan, the presenter, said, why don't you do him a bit like Zippy crossed with Frankie <laughs> Howard? <laughs> so was, hi, dear, hi, campus, Motherwell chairman, John Boyle. It was this campus. <laughs> he, I'd meet him at dinners and he would be, he took it really well because he was actually funnier than the impersonation was. That yeah. was the thing. When they're funnier than uh, you are. Oh. Well, let, let me ask you about, incidentally, I just wanted to say, you're, you know, obviously you've got a great, your accents are great, and your Scottish accent is, is fucking brilliant. So I just wanted Thanks to point that Thanks very much. That's very yeah. kind of you to say so. A bit of Billy <laughs> would be wrong there, would it? Because he's got the best and the greatest of them all, you know. <laughs> so moving on from that, uh, I, I was gonna I was gonna do a little Connolly uh, voice off with you, but I, I, there's really no point. I, I just I, <laughs> are you, well, I used to do that. Uh, oh, that's quite weird, you know. It's peculiar and bonkers and all that. Very peculiar, very strange, and as well as you look at it, it could change at any moment. <laughs> but let me ask you about um, you've meant you've referenced uh, Rory and Al- Alistair. For my money, I mean, Rory does what he does and he's the best at it. You know, that kind of satirical and political arena. McGowan, for me, is just about the perfect impressionist because he can probably do anyone and his, he gets the accent, he gets the inflections. He's, if you then see him doing it, he seems to grab hold of those little, yeah, those little things that center an impression. Have you ever... Borrowed. I won't say stolen, but have you ever borrowed from another impressionist, or have you ever? Because you obviously you're working on Dead Ringers, and we'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But you know, sometimes you see an, another impressionist produce a voice, and you think, "Ah, oh, shit, yeah, nah, I can see." There's the hook. Yeah, you found it, and I couldn't find it, and now I can do it. Does that does that work for you? Well, there's a, somebody who, who I'm sure you are. And your listeners don't know is a, is a is a dear friend of mine. His name's Kevin. Kevin Neal. We call him Shabby, and Shabby speaks like this. Lewis, he was a legend of advertising. Hello, Lewis. <laughs> and Shabby said to me once a great a great line. Lewis, success has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. So, in answer to your question, the only time I can re- really say that I, I I guess would be as a as a 
errant teenager when Rory first rose to prominence. Yeah. You know, I was, I, I, I was obsessed with that show. I thought this is the, this is what is this is something, you know, one of those moments uh, that you think, wow, this is kind of something I'd, I'd like to do, and, uh, and yeah. it bolstered along, but. Uh, you know, the, the Phil Cool was the same. I, I used to love his oh, show, and especially with him physicality-wise, his face oh. was so 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 incredibly mesmerising. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, but the thing is, I remember I could never impersonate Barry Norman, and somehow when when I was, I mean, I'd be like sixteen at this point. You yeah. know, like I'd I'd, yeah. I'd look at Rory doing it, and somehow it is a cheat. There's no question about it. You've got to do your own take on it and find yeah. your own thing. Yeah. But you know, not professionally. I would just, you know, you would. It was almost like mimics on the telly, perhaps, were showing you what that is that they do. Yeah. You know, somebody said with the, with the political impersonations that I do, Andrew Neil on the sofa tonight. Well, what's going to go down? Let's find out. <laughs> Joining me on the sofa, Thor, <laughs> God of Thunder, the ghost of Walt Disney, and Diana. <laughs> there's, there's more. There's more. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess the. Oh, I mean, I, I think Alistair's most famous, and Alistair is brilliant. And and, yeah. and you know the joy of it is, I've had the privilege of having Rory give me advice since I was nineteen. You know, he um, he came and watched me when I was in show with with Vicky Corrin, yeah. now Victoria Corrin Mitchell, and and Alex yeah. Langdon, John Rory's writer's son. And, you know, and having, I mean, how generous a man, he would come over and sort of help you, you know, try that. Because I was, I was personating people that are like in their 80s. I was doing Dan Maskell when I was 19. I was like, well done, Lindo. I don't know what it's, I can't, I've no reference of it, but I remember doing it then. Uh, it would have sounded <laughs> awful. <laughs> you know, he would have known that. He would say, well, at least I've given it a go. Yeah. And Alistair um, came down when Ronnie and I did our show. And Alistair actually said, you need to work with Lewis, if, you know, this Donald Melania thing. So Alistair has been wonderful in that and introduced me to a double act partner that I didn't have. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I mean, they're, 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 they're chums. They're, they're really good. So the camaraderie is, is, is robust there. But yeah. Rory was the guy that I would go, God, that guy is, uh, you know, to a 16-year-old trying to learn how to be an impersonator, yeah. you could only watch, you know, and when it's done right, there's a there's a guy on YouTube, I don't know, uh, his name is, because he's always putting it up as, as Gordon Ramsay, but this guy does Gordon I, Ramsay. Yes. And, uh, have you seen him? He I've does seen Gordon him, Ramsay. Yeah. You know, that guy's got it. He's, you know, yeah. he could uh, go on and, and do this and make a, a career, you know. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, that's interesting because I mean, the, the, well, talking about Alistair McGowan, I, he got me my first break in radio and I found him, I've worked with him a few times, worked him on, on the first series of Dead Ringers. And I always found Alistair to be generous and charming as a lovely guy. Let's talk about Dead Ringers. I don't can't remember when the first series was, but two thousand and three, or I'm not. I can't remember when was it. Yeah, ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine. Wow. Okay, yeah, earlier than I thought. How many series have you done now? Well, I, I, I when I first went into Dead Ringers, it was a radio show, and it was I think two thousand and one, okay. and it was series three. Right. And uh, then I I took a hiatus. When I went down to London and said, right, I'm doing voiceovers, doing voiceovers for everything that I'm going to, yeah. I want to be a good voiceover. I want to do cinema trails, cartoons. I want to do ads. And that's what I did. The yeah. radio comedy is, a, it might have been part of that thing I was telling you about. The, well, you've got to be really brainy to do, you know, satirical comedy. Yeah. No, yeah, you yeah. just need to get in the team and, the, and the, you know, be yeah. work, with the, work with the team. And so there was, there were numerous, there were, and I got offered to be a panelist on, um, on uh, first impressionist, in fact, no, I was a team captain, yeah. and I turned it down. I, I went no, I and uh, and there's a number of reasons. I mean, there were, I made some pretty poor decisions in my career. There was, yeah. um, and, and and I can put it not largely down to bereavement, but my father died, and you know he he was a massive influence on me. And the year the year he died, I got a, a part in Star Wars. I got, you know, working with Jeff Wayne. And there was a lot of great things happened. But yeah. uh, I, I did make some decisions that, you know, for example, I could have written a series with Peter Serafinovich for telly. We could have got, a, at least got a pilot away. And, yeah. I, and I just didn't really want to do it much at all. I had to go easy on myself because it's a yeah. demanding industry, as you know. So yeah. uh, I, that might be part of it. But it comes back, you know. It, it just took about a year. And slowly I started getting back in and doing radio drama, comedy dramas and and so I was learning how to act as well. So 
it, there was a benefit to everything ultimately, but I wish I had been just a little bit more stoic and just gone on with it. And But, you know, I got invited back to Dead Ringers in 2013. Right. So we, so I was away from it, and it really became John and Jan's show, uh, yeah. you know, with Mark and Kevin and, and Phil Conwell doing the telly. But the the radio series, when it came back, it came back with a a bang, you know, because yeah. you've got Deborah Stevenson, you've got Duncan Wisby, who is phenomenal. They're both, they're all, I think, I, I, I count them as peers. John's amazing, and now we're like a wee family. We're you know we we got on really well. We yeah. we um we all know. You know, it's a bit of a bun fight, as you would expect. We go, well, let's try that. I'll give that. It's, you've basically just got your shop. You've opened up at one end of the street, and there's somebody else's opened up. Yeah. You well, know, and let's, let me yeah. ask you about that, because one of the things I found really difficult, because I'm not pushy and I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I probably will always defer to someone else's impression. Oh, well, you probably do it better than me. But that was there was always that voice off, you know, where Bill Dare would say, "Right, we need to get a David Bedil. Who does David Bedil?" And you know, you put your hand up, and then you go, "Well, go on then." <laughs> and you go, "I thought that it, I'm David Bedil, or whatever, you know, whatever it was." And then, <laughs> That's really good. It's uh, not bad. <laughs> and then someone else would do it. You know, Alistair would do it, and then John Culture uh, would do it. And I think. I'm just not going to get this. And in the end, I, and I didn't get any of them. He didn't He didn't know me as well as the other guys, which is a lame excuse, but it, it, there were even voices where I thought, I know mine is better. Just on this occasion, I know mine is clear. I'm still not getting it. Um, and then in the end, I started to withdraw, and I just thought, oh, fuck it. Uh, I'm never going to get a voice. Um, I'll put my hand up. You know, as I say, I'll put my hand up for the waiter, and I'll do Ronnie Gorbid at the end. You know, that's, that's it, and that's it. That's all I'm going to do. <laughs> how how you you strike me as a more robust character than me? How do you deal with that? Because it's tough, isn't it? You because you're up against gifted. You lift the table up at one end, and you pour. You just pull it, <laughs> just up end the table, and go. I'm going out the door for a cigarette. Stick it up your ass. <laughs> Slam the door. No. <laughs> I don't know. I think um, it's it's learning that the, the process. I, I guess for me it was because I've had those moments too in my life, yeah. and, uh, and and uh, more than once. And you're gonna go, oh, and it's quite soul destroying. But I think you you kind of as you go. I think maybe just age, wisdom being full of years, you sort of go, well, maybe this is the you don't. It, it's not the most important thing in the world. No. And it, and it can come back round in sort of strange ways that you wouldn't expect. I found when I felt, oh, I really want that. I think I could do that. Um, and that sort of, that, that thing happening, I don't know. I guess I'd just become a little bit more, ah, good. Well, that's, you know, seeing the positive out of it, trying yeah. to if I can. But, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's, there's happy accidents can fall. If you were in a series like that, then, and it was becoming apparent that you, you're not, you know, that you're not doing very much. I think, you know, the, 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 there sort of comes a point where you have to go, well, you know, can I maybe just try one or two? It's, it's, everybody's different in how they approach that. And there's no right way or wrong way. Yeah. As long as it doesn't sort of dent the, the spirit of the show, I guess, you know, the, yeah, the show that, is the show and it has to, that's, you know, that's the thing is you, you can't be high hand. I mean, my, I, I would, you know, each week before we, we went to do the recording, I'd go and meet my, my wife and my family outside and, and they say, you know, you, how's it coming? I say, well, we've done the read-throughs. Uh, look out for me after 15 minutes. I do one voice and then I'll do Ronnie Corbett at the end. And I'd say to my wife, I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to leave because I can't see the point. I feel embarrassed sitting up on that stage, not doing any voice. Oh, yeah, they, they throw me a bone <laughs> now and again. You know, I'd usually get some football commentator or something. Uh, and then when I went to, I did Dustin Hoffman one week and, you know, I, I, I'll come right back here. I can't remember. And it got a massive, massive laugh of recognition, you know, the recognition laugh. And, and, and they cut the laugh. Uh, when they put the show out, and I just thought I'm onto a loser, here. and they probably cut it for good reasons, you know. Oh no, they do. Time. I mean, yeah. Bill, but Bill is one of the. I, I've got to say because you know, I, I don't want this to be sort of a, a, a negative thing about Ringers because I'm part of their team, and I really, I, I do enjoy being with them because now, uh, after you know all these years of sort of yeah. me not being around with them, and 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 only can in from time to time, I actually think that we 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 work well, but it there is a you have to. Give everybody a, 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 a piece of it, and I think that's what Bill does beautifully. And I think that's that's how I perceive him. 
I don't see yeah. it in any other way. I know that the the process of a line getting cut can be really brutal or a sketch yeah. getting cut. But I mean, I, I work on Private Eye Live and that's right. editing that you'd think, and it's to look at it and go, geez, that's savage, you know, because it's, you know, the script is the script. You get the script and then suddenly yeah. it just goes, they go in with a scythe and there is good yeah. reason because they have to get yeah. it in in that 52, three minutes and, yeah. and get it down. Yeah. And so unfortunately things are going to have to get cut. I, I, I would, yeah. Simon Greenall said this to me once. He said, you know, when you look at the way the edit ringers and it, it, I, I forget the sketches that get binned now because I think the way the show airs yeah. is seamless. It's, it's just, he's got it down. To, it's just tremendous. I can have a sketch. Like I did a, I've done loads now that do well in the room. And you think, oh, that's a shoe in, and it don't makes it doesn't make the show. Make and, you, yeah. and you can think, yeah. oh, I'm up to that. But the way the show is, I, I find he edits it really well. I know. I think that Simon Greenall said to me, you know, would be really good if you could see ringers, uh, warts and all, right? You could because it's essentially two shows in one one recording. You've got yeah. two half-hour shows going out in a, in the in the room. I'd love to see that as well. I think. Like the way now they film, you know, you've got Mark Kermo talking about a movie. Um, well, you know, the special effects weren't really part of the, the plot. But, you, you know, I like, see, I, like, I like watching them review a film on radio. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's on. And I'd love to see that with Ringers because Bill has has the office of judiciary. <laughs> and we wind him up about it. Well. Actually, I do a good impersonation about it, I think. But so does John. <laughs> uh, okay, right, uh, here we are. Okay, and, uh, and and he's brilliant. No, I mean, yes, he's, you know, I, I love him, but I think he's great. But I, I, I do, I do think that um, that's a hard job is to say, right? Well, what what's going to work here? Because again, he's very. I, I, I've noticed this about him. He'll, he'll look at a sketch and say, right, well, you, you, Lewis, you just did that Trump there. You know, we need to get you know, and that's you know, there's there's that element of it. Everybody has to get a fair a fair crack at it. I'd like to try and do something at the end of a show, which is. Either ask you to do your Alan Rickman because you must, you must do Alan Rickman. No, oh, hang on, I'm not sure. I'm getting a bit of a look. Mm. Um, well, to- Takagi. I mean, I, again, I need to work him up. There's some that you got, you kind of get to when you have a little bit, you're a bit rusty, but it's not one of the ones at the top of the top of my head. I can go oh. right. Boof. But I can do you a good McKellen. Disappointing. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, then, in that case. Bravo. <laughs> in that case, teach me in Ian McKellen because I can't do it. Well, the first thing that I would suggest oh, is right, a deep right. breath in. An inhalation. The lungs have been provided to you. Take in the air that is around you. With, and then let the air wither through the chambers of your face. And hold your finger always, very important, that you remember, and remember to take your time. Breathe in again, if you have to, and if it must be, not forgetting the northern roots about it. And if you feel the necessity to, well, then you shall. You know, <laughs> you've already taken that out of the realms of possibility for me. I, I, <laughs> Not uh, at all. I was trying to through uh, the, the breathing well, thing. The, the, let's, take, well, let's take it little little stages. So, just give me a little phrase. <laughs> give me a um, well. One of them, darling. Or darling, one of them, darling. darling. I mean, it could be darling. The, darling. There is no other way. There's no other way. What is that? Is that an e-pipe you're smoking? Is that an e-pipe you're smoking? Hold on, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've made a start on that. Um, I'm going to have to go away and, and do some, some more work now. I think this is unquestionably. Lewis McLeod, this has been an absolute joy. I've thoroughly oh, every second of it. We, we've had a few little sound problems that I've picked up along the way, but uh, well, listen, even with that, it's been fantastic. So thanks for joining us. Uh, you can go and get out of your car now and go into your airless booth. Uh, <laughs> My soundproofed car. 
<laughs> Indeed. Uh, and thank you once again. And I, listen, we, there's so much. I started writing notes and I never got around to half my questions. So if you get a chance a bit later on in the in the pod series, love to have you back on. And we oh, can man. Uh, with yeah. pleasure. And thank you, Simon. So great to catch up with you. And thanks for asking yeah. me on. And, and it is a tricky time, this. And, uh, and, and to everyone that's listening, I hope that you're getting through it. And, uh, and, and, you know, much love to you and yours. And to you and yours, and we'll uh, catch up again. But for now, it's uh, a million thanks to Lewis McLeod. And from me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.